It's the day after Christmas and I'm shivering in the cold next to Carla. We're standing at a petrol station on the edge of Berlin. We each have a backpack. Our homes are neatly packed away inside. Do you talk to that person? I asked her. We're approaching every car that drives through, checking their license plate and seeing what direction they might be going in. We're headed south. We want to go to Prague. After 40 minutes of asking, we start to get a little worried. Everyone's been going in different directions or been completely unapproachable. Maybe we have to stay in Berlin another night. It's winter, so we don't have that much daylight. We can't risk thumbing it after dark. The night puts strange spells on people. Until a young man, not much older than us, waves his arms and has us hop into his car. After four hours and only one or two more stops at petrol stations, we make our way to Dresden. But the sun is setting and starting to cast long shadows over the German landscape. Fuck, we aren't going to make it. We turn to each other and figure it's best to stay the night. I don't think we're going to be able to hitch to Prague. Dresden flirts with the Czech border. God, we're so close. Both a little bummed, we get into a cafe and put a shout out on couch surfing to see if anyone can host us for the night. I've been dying to go back to Prague for two years. It was a second home to me, and waiting another minute made my heart squeeze. After about an hour and some unfortunate offers for a threesome, we get a message from a kind-faced German boy about our age. He sends us his contact info, and we gather our things and start heading towards his apartment. I don't know anything about this city. We weren't expecting to stay here. All I knew is that it had been heavily bombed during the Second World War by our country. But walking around it 60 years later, it was hard to find any evidence that the city was once destroyed. The lights around the city illuminated the broke edifices, castles, churches, and opera houses, reminiscent of their original decoration and grandeur. We come across an extravagant wall with a large mural of medieval men on horses. It took us a hundred steps to walk this massive wall, adorned with yellow, gray, and white porcelain tiles. Each square puzzle pieced together pictures of every ruler of this area. They are merrily strolling along together or riding horses, like walking along an unfurled Greek face. The vast majority of the city was destroyed during the American raid, yet somehow, this wall remained relatively unscathed from the explosives falling from that cold February night sky. Carla, let's just look over here. We hear drumming in the distance and follow the direction of the nobleman on the wall. We turn the corner and step into a giant square that's filled with (laughs) it's this magnificent medieval Christmas market now from my memory it's a roundish courtyard and stands are made out of wood and engraved in old fashioned script food vendors are selling steaming meat pulled from giant cauldrons sellers write out receipts with feather pens and ink puppeteers are playing invisible pianos as wooden dolls bounce below them minstrels bounce around the streets playing a mandolin 
and sing archaic melodies, a metal Christmas angel hangs above the market and watches over the crowd. We were incredulous. We slowly made our way through the labyrinth of the stands and people. Everyone working was so committed to the experience. Unless we had stepped into a time warp and got pulled into the female version of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Whatever it was, it was incredible. The serendipity of the moment helped us forget the circumstances that brought us there. Sometimes it doesn't matter how much you plan, the world has a way of surprising you. Today on the show, we're going to wander around. An aspect that's often glorified and expected out of our travels. But in a world so structured and well-mapped, I can understand why wandering is so coveted. Wandering invites surprises, and with Google, I think we're a little starved of it. It's the antithesis of being lost. Lost means that we once had a direction, whereas wandering allows us to have no compass at all. We will talk to travelers who have allowed themselves to stray and explore unknown places. We're going to figure out how to maintain a sense of curiosity, how to do so from every level, and how to let go of your plans and be pleasantly surprised. Today, let's just wander around. I'm Adrienne Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. Chris Christensen is not as redundant as his name sounds. He is the host of Amateur Traveler, a podcast that gives people top recommendations of what to do in specific places around the world. He walks the walk and guides small groups of travelers on his bespoke tours in different countries. Although he has his 10,000 hours of travel in, he still considers himself to be an amateur, someone who does something out of love. He has his own personal manifesto that keeps him and his audience appreciative and mindful while traveling. Sometimes, the more we travel, the more things look the same. The novelty wears off, and we let the world wash over us. Before we know it, we're back on the plane home. So I ask Chris, after all he's explored, how does he always maintain a sense of wonder? I actually don't find that to be all that hard to do i like i want to know everything (laughs) it's not necessarily that i want to see everything i want to know everything i'm just not comfortable with ignorance and so one of the reasons i love travel is that it always stretches that it always shows you that you don't know everything right and so it puts you into situations where you go huh (laughs) i wouldn't have expected that or just that people don't do the same thing everywhere. And that comes across in the show, but it also comes across in my own travels where, you know, you'll run into things that will kind of stretch your knowledge of the way things work. The anticipation of a trip can sometimes implant unrealistic expectations. You're so ready for a break, or maybe you've wanted to go to this place since you were a kid. But expectations rapidly grow upon itself, like a mutated cell on an organ. 
the highest expectations lead to the greatest disappointments. And even amateur travelers know not to pack expectations because they weigh you down the most. It's rare that our dreams match up with reality. Traveling means that you surrender to whatever is about to happen. But the more you travel, the more you learn how to be happy with whatever good comes your way. What you expect when you're going to a place, it definitely makes a difference. And it can make a positive difference or a negative difference just depending on how the site measures up to your expectations. I mean, one of the reasons that we do we suddenly become plural. When I talk about amateur traveler, I I, uh, get a mouse in my pocket. When I do the amateur traveler, the thing that I'm trying to convey, for instance, is the correct expectations. And so if the place is a little dicey, I want you to know it's a little dicey. I don't want you necessarily to not go, right? But I don't want you to tell you that, hey, sure, go to Rio. There's no problem with crime, right? That wouldn't be accurate. But on the other hand, I don't want you to say, well, I don't want to go to Mexico because Mexico is unsafe. So I think part of it is just understanding what things are like in a realistic fashion. And a lot of Americans I know, and I don't know why, but a lot of Americans have a lot of fear about foreign countries. And a lot of it is unfounded in the sense that they're more afraid of going to places like they may be afraid of going to Japan on a personal safety level, which is just ridiculous because it's much, much safer than wherever they're from at home, for instance. And so part of it is just going with the correct expectation of what to, you know, what you need to watch out for in a place as well as what you need to look for in a, in a positive thing. You know, what food experience is going to be memorable, what site is going to be definitional for you, what experience you should really try and we're not going to get 100% accurate in terms of, you know, in a 45-minute show, you can't completely convey a destination. You're obviously, just, you know, conveying it from a particular, de- uh, a particular point of view, whether it's me or a guest or, or the combination of the two of us. We're all going to bring our own biases, whether this place is a place that's worth going but I'm hoping to give you a better idea of if this place is a match for you, right? Because the, the one thing I don't do is I don't ever have on tourism board representatives because the answer of it's great for everybody is never true. <laughs> it's just not true. It, it, no place is great for everybody. You, you know, New York City has a lot to offer a lot of people, but if you don't like crowds and you don't like cities, you should go somewhere else. Oh, whole facts. Yes, 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 yes. I currently live in the city and... Yes, that's why I was picking on the city. <laughs> you are more which, than allowed to. Which took me a while to love, I'll, I'll be honest with you, because I came from, I want to say a small town. It's really a town of five, 50 to fifty to 100,000, which I know in some states would be the, the first, second, or third largest city. Right. But in California, that's not considered a big city. And... Right. You know, even coming from that, the first time I was in New York City, I was intimidated by it. Oh, yeah. Um, I've been living here for three years. I'm still intimidated. There are nuanced aspects of travel that you can't read in a guidebook and can only acquire from consistent practice. One of those things is your gut. And I asked him if his instinct has improved over the years and over the oceans that he's traveled through. You know, my my threat radar has been pretty good so far. 
Well, I mean, some of the things are obvious. You know, you go out of your hostel in Mexico City and there are riot police there and you go, I'm going someplace else today, right? <laughs> so, some is just common sense and some is, do I trust this person or is this a scam? And, and I've gotten that wrong occasionally. I've got that wrong in uh, Beijing where we, you know, were told by these art students that they were doing a, a, a uh, an exhibit and later on it turned out that no no it was it was really just selling us things from off the street as if they were made by these people and you know at different prices so you know partly it's just trying to figure out who you can trust and what you can what you should do in this situation and that's you know it takes some experience and you're going to get some things wrong so hopefully you don't get any of the important ones wrong that are more related to safety so I think of, for instance, I was in Tanzania and I was there on a, a group trip. It was uh, actually people from my church, there were about 10 of us. And we got off the bus. Uh, one stayed to go where the bus was, you know, go park and then find us later. And the other uh, eight, nine of us rather, got off the bus. And eight of them followed me because they knew that I was the only one who spoke a word of Swahili and, and practically only a word of Swahili. And yeah, I think we had been together long enough that they knew that I would find my way back. <laughs> I just sort of strode confidently into this, you know, very local market in the middle of nowhere in, in Tanzania outside of Arusha, not where the tourists normally go. And, you know, some of it is being a six foot three uh, white guy, uh, that there are definitely things that I don't have to worry about as much as you do, for instance, and it's, and, and it's unfair uh, but it's true, uh, and somewhat it is the if you strolled, if you stride confidently, then you are less of a target. Um, and then it's somewhat reading the situation. It's some combination of that. I asked him, after being to six continents and hundreds of cities, which one surprised him the most? I'm not sure about surprised me the most. The one, I, the moment I remember thinking. So I'm a history buff, too, is one of the things that uh, comes across, I think, in the show for people who listen to it. And standing at the Great Pyramid and hearing our guide, uh, this was actually on the very first amateur traveler trip, talking about the who built the pyramids and what happened to them. So this is the old kingdom of Egypt. And we don't know who conquered them. It was so long ago that we've lost track of who it was, but we know they had an unfair advantage because they had the wheel. <laughs> You're standing there looking at this pyramid going, excuse me? <laughs> Wait, could you go back a little bit here and say, say what? <laughs> the people who built this didn't have the wheel. They certainly didn't have chariots at least. And they built a lot of that with, you know, logs and, and using milk as, as a lubricant and things like that. It's just fascinating. Uh, when you look at some of those things that have been around for so long and uh, some of those civilizations that have been around, certainly a lot longer than my country's been long. More often than not, we get the best surprises when we have no expectations. A good traveler knows that your trip will never end up looking like what you planned out, no matter how perfect it may seem. It's wild how you spend so much time thinking and planning but once you arrive someplace, it has a totally different plan for you. The richest travels are the ones where you just let go and let the journey take you. Adam, the writer of Travels with Adam blog, learned this on his first journey around the world. 
After an impromptu weekend in Iceland, he knew that his life could not be confound to the walls of an office. The more he read and researched, the more he got obsessed and planned his trip down to a T. And I had created like this whole like map and spreadsheet of where I was going to go, how much it might cost, and uh, I basically then went uh, from Boston to Spain. And I started in Spain, and then I was going to travel across North Africa through the Middle East into Europe again and back to Asia. But pretty much almost immediately once I started traveling, I uh, kind of threw out my plan. So I'm not sure what this feeling is called, but there are some places that immediately resonate with you. Even if you're exploring this place for the first time, something about walking through the landscape, around the brick buildings, or the way that the street food and pollution blend together just feels right. It's a strange feeling of home, thousands of miles away from where you were born. Maybe we're revisiting a past life, or the place smells like our childhood. Wherever I have found these places on my journeys, I feel completely comfortable, even though I don't know where I'm going. That's how Adam felt when he landed in Israel. And in Jerusalem, I was immediately like overtaken with this like intense interest in the history there. You just feel the intensity there because it's a city that's so old and so important to so many peoples and cultures and the calls to prayers. Everything was like, yeah, it was just overwhelming. It sounds so silly, but you just sort of feel it. Plus, but I think it's the the city itself is home to like like one of the largest art schools in Israel and in the Middle East. So you have that kind of like creative culture and you have all these art galleries and sort of the, the young students. Yeah, and because of that, you get this cool vibe and there's tons of cool places. But most tourists, I think, don't see that. And at a certain point, Adam knew he couldn't leave. Something magnetized him. He needed to stay and get deeper into this complex country. So he decided to settle down in Jerusalem for a month. And so I decided to slow down, and I, um, but it was also such a surprising place because uh, I, I was dating an Israeli guy while I was there. It's kind of an intense, serious relationship. I was exploring Jerusalem, and we were going to, like, drag shows, and that's just not something I ever expected. Being able to peel back the layers of the city made Adam feel more connected to it. Queer culture is always hidden in plain sight. Adam found the one spot in this geopolitical region that found queerness to be acceptable. Queer communities are harder to find because one is rarely born into it. It's a tribe that historically has been hidden and that one has to seek out. It's an invisible community, one found by an elongated eye contact or a piercing on the right ear. So being able to dive into the community so quickly gave Adam a sense of comfort that he might not have found in the rest of the region. Yeah, we, so like we were, and I wanted to find like cool queer stuff. Um, so he, he used to take me to these parties that would happen in the, the Jerusalem, the main market in Western Jerusalem. Um, after hours, like, they'd shut the market down, but then, like, little places would sort of stay open, and we'd go, like, drink uh, shots of Arak, 
and just like stay out late, buzzed and like happy to like have been part of the queer culture of the city. I asked him what people typically expect out of a trip in Israel. Yeah, most people go to Jerusalem, I think, for the history and the religion. Jerusalem is this city that, like, everyone has an expectation of it. And because it's, it's always sort of been there, um, everyone has these perceived expectations that it was this religious, holy city. Conservative, yeah, or controversial. I mean, it's for sure a controversial city. And I remember, like, there were times when I was nervous <laughs> being gay in Jerusalem. Because even, like, I, you know, there were parts of the city that I, I didn't want to walk through, like the, the hyper-religious um, areas. Adam realized that he was able to straddle multiple worlds in Jerusalem, not only with his queer identity, but also with his non-Middle Eastern one. Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities in the world. It is home to the Abrahamic religions. For thousands of years, different groups have claimed Jerusalem for their own and fought for it tirelessly. It has been destroyed and rebuilt and stained in blood and tears and joy over the years. This tension still exists today. The countries of Israel and Palestine claim Jerusalem as their capital which has led to rising issues since 1948, when Israel declared its independence and severed the land between the new state of Israel and the West Bank. This is where the Palestinian population was moved to. The Israelis and Palestinians have divided Jerusalem into two, like the gruesome decision of King Solomon, and they refuse to cross the border, walking distance from their homes. And I would go into the West Bank pretty often, and then I'd go to Ramallah, capital of the West Bank and Palestine. My boyfriend at the time, like, he was Israeli, and he, he could never go to these parts of the region. And I would be, I'd, you know, I'd wake up and I'd be like, hey, I'm going to Ramallah today. At first, he was like, you know, oh, that's, you know, like, you shouldn't go there. It's not safe. But, you know, what? It was, in the, it was in the guidebook, and, like, there were, like, cool hipster coffee shops in Ramallah. There are even, like, queer parties that happen. I never managed to go to one while I was there then. But it is a modern city. It's just harder for some people to get there. Yeah, so it was so close, but, like, because it was part of the West Bank, a lot of Israelis might avoid that area. Yeah, but so, so the whole city, there's all these... There's actual physical walls and barriers, but then there's also invisible ones that people are afraid to cross. And as a foreigner, and especially as an American in that region at that time, I had more access to the whole area than people who lived there. And that was, that was probably the first time I experienced that, maybe the only time, where the, the foreigner, the traveler, has more rights and access. And it was... I found that empowering because that made me want to experience and see more of it. And that's how I ended up going to, to drag shows in West Jerusalem, to hipster coffee shops in Ramallah, to uh, like political bookshops in, the, in East Jerusalem, and where you got to really like interact with people and talk to people who lived there. So yeah, like I used that, that whole opportunity to just kind of learn what I could and experience it all. 
I think we connect to certain cities because we find aspects of ourselves there. Places seem to have their own personality. The spots that I found the most connection to have the same common denominators as my own. When Adam explored Jerusalem, it was like walking on a shallow, clear pool of water, reflecting all of his complexities back at him. At that time, I felt like very involved and connected with the culture there. And I felt like Jerusalem was this, this place that I could belong. I mean, because of this, the political benefits I had with my passport being access to the city, because I was able to find parts of my like, queer identity in the city, because I found the, like, the inspiration and that intensity that you just feel from the religious and political and controversial atmosphere that just exists there. It just, Jerusalem felt like a city that I could connect with or belong in. And, I'm, and I think that's, I think that's a, a feeling a lot of people feel when they go to Jerusalem because everyone sort of feels like it's their city, which is part of the problem. But also part of the, it could be part of a solution. <laughs> because, it, I mean, like, travel has this opportunity to bring us together. I've been back to Jerusalem lots of times since because I just, the city is so cool. Like, I go to Jerusalem to go to this, like, hipster queer dive bar around the corner from, like, a 24-hour, like, you know, hummus place. That's probably not why a lot of people travel to Jerusalem, but that's why I go there. I think Jerusalem's like nowhere else in the world. He recounts that this intimate time in Jerusalem would have never happened if he tenaciously stuck to his original plan. But I, I let it happen, and I, because when I when I set out to travel, I created this plan, this itinerary, this like budget, <laughs> and then I quickly learned while you're traveling, you just kind of have to experience it and let let yourself go where you feel like in that moment, and. Yeah, when, when something strikes you, you just got to take advantage of it and embrace it. I spent uh, 15 months backpacking around the world. Honestly, the, the greatest part of that experience was not, um, not that I was traveling. The, the greatest part of that whole experience was that literally every day, I just did what I felt like doing with very little thought to the consequences. I'm still like a pretty rational person, but like I, I knew I had this money and it was like if I felt like staying in Tel Aviv for three months, I was going to stay. And I was very lucky and very privileged to have been able to save up that kind of money to spend it on myself. But that opportunity to, to really do what you wanted to do every day for 15 months of my life, like I, that was the greatest thing I could have done. Even when you know what you're getting yourself into, the picture will never capture the real thing. A guidebook or Pinterest board is no replacement. Standing in front of the real wonder is indescribable. But as a travel writer, I'll take a crack at it. I'll compare it to the time I went to one of the most visited tourist destinations in the world, the Eiffel Tower. 
The Eiffel Tower was an image that had been plastered everywhere in my education. It covered my high school folders, the walls of my French classroom, and inked each page in a French grammar book. You could have been raised in an underground bunker and still recognize that image. But it wasn't until I was 20 when I saw it in person. I was traveling with a study abroad friend in the same program in Prague, and we got a local Parisian couch surfer for the week. And like all first-time tourists, the Eiffel Tower was an absolute must. So we took the Metro 8 to Eco Militaire and stepped out in the hollow white tube of the Parisian subway. The sounds of the train and hustle of people getting off muffled the reverberating notes of an accordion. An old man resting his instrument on his corpulent belly is busking by the entrance. He pulls and presses on it, eyes shut, head tilted to one side. He seems as worn as the old euros that are sprinkled in the cap placed at his feet. There's enough change for him to get a baguette and a bottle of wine for tonight. He does another long drag, louder now that most people have walked out. Something about the sound of an accordion has always made my heart break. The three of us walk out of the subway stop, lined with that thick green cast iron guardrail, decorated like swirls on a birthday cake. I inhale that warm wetness of spring. It's the kind of air that's misleading, where the sun looks like it's going to be warm out, but the remaining breezes of winter still run through the streets. The three of us walk along the edge of the garden, and I keep wondering where the hell this tower is. I mean, it's supposed to be massive. But the curvature of the earth and the height of the trees mask the tower's presence for a few more minutes. Then, out of nowhere, this tall point pierces through the trees and honestly surprises me. Holy shit! We stood with our backs to the Seine. We stood with our backs to the Seine, and my American friend and I just stared, our mouths agape. It was so much bigger than I anticipated. That's what she said. As we walked under it, it felt honestly kind of erotic. It seemed to hold both male and female parts. The tall point of the tower split into what felt like the spread open legs of a woman with a never ending vortex underneath. We stood under it, heads tilted up, openly staring, like gazing up a lady's skirt and shamelessly not looking away. I don't think that Rick Steves would have been comfortable putting that observation in a guidebook. Even though it was believed to be an eyesore when it was built, I'm glad the Parisians didn't tear it down. We then made our way to the other side of the tower, where the gardens were dotted with young lovers picnicking and making out, and tourists were taking a rest from their event-packed day. I think what mesmerized me the most was the energy of the space. We were standing in a spot where so many humans have made such a long trek for. I was sensing the area's energy. It was a place where for years people invested their love, anger, grief, passion, and hope all in one area. My folders never made me feel that way. So even if you know what you're getting into, you still don't really know what to expect. 
But it's not just sensing the aura of a space. It's also everything you did to get there. Scott, from the Far From Home podcast, knows that feeling a little too well. The first season of his podcast captures the 11,000-mile adventure he went on in a comically tiny car from London to Mongolia. And along the way, Scott saw things that he highly anticipated and then could have never planned for. But because he kept his expectations low, every turn was a surprise. This is an excerpt from one of the moments that surprised him the most on his journey across Eurasia. After wandering around aimlessly all morning, we finally managed to find our way out of the city and head north into the Karakum Desert, one of the hottest and driest places on Earth. We spent hours driving past sand dunes and camels out for a midday stroll. And let me just say, if you've never seen a camel in the wild before, they're actually pretty strange and fascinating creatures to watch. Shortly before sunset, we arrived at the remote outpost of Darvaza, basically a small building atop a hill that was roughly the midpoint of our entire journey and a site we had been looking forward to for months. It was near here that we planned to meet up with dozens of other rally teams for a night of camping and celebration at what had been built the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. It was hard to drive to the precise location of the festivities given that our little cars weren't good at handling off-road treks through the sand, so we paid a local guy to take us in his 4x4. It was golden hour as the sun sank to the horizon, casting a gorgeous light over the already pretty landscape, so our driver put on some appropriate relaxing music to heighten the mood. Suddenly, and without warning, he changed to a different track as we came over a hill. <laughs> yeah! And then we saw it. Oh, there it is. Oh, left, look to the left! Holy shit. Holy crap. Oh, look at the light coming up. Oh my God. Oh, guys, this is even better than I expected. Holy shit. You'll have to excuse our language because what we were looking at ahead of us was totally breathtaking. There in the middle of the desert, surrounded by miles of nothingness, was the so-called door to hell, a giant crater bigger than a football field. And the whole thing was literally on fire. Our driver dropped this off and we walked over to take a closer look. Rosie said it was simultaneously frightening and awe-inspiring. This, my friends, is what hell looks like, she said. Make sure that in, the, in your life you're oh a good, God. good person. Oh, Jane. Just then, the wind blew in our direction, and a giant gust of hot air sent us scrambling back from the crater's edge. Whoa, that's hot. Heat is amazing. So we're looking at this giant pit in the ground, like 200 feet across. We're just surrounded by deserts, kind of hills here. And then the land suddenly just drops off. And down there, there's rocks and dirt that's kind of caved into a kind of a crater in the bottom. And all throughout it, there's patches of fire, just bright orange fire burning from, I guess, natural gas seeping up from the ground. And uh, looking across, the air is all kind of wavy, you know, from all the gas escaping. You smell some natural gas. Uh, coming up like as if there was a gas leak, which I guess it is, a gas leak from the earth. This is so otherworldly. Look at that plume of flame. This is absolutely nuts. 
The story goes that some Soviets exploring for natural gas had a bit of a mishap at some point back in the 60s or 70s when their drilling rig collapsed into this sinkhole. No one knows exactly what happened because there appeared to be a cover-up and the details have long since been lost to history. But basically, someone got the bright idea to light the pit on fire to burn off the escaping gases that could have been harmful to people in the nearby village. They figured it might burn for a week or so, but Turkmenistan has the sixth largest natural gas reserves in the world, so it probably shouldn't be a surprise that it continues to burn several decades later, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We hung out for a while, and then the party began. So it's a little later now, and a bunch of the teams have arrived, and everyone just kind of gazing all around the, the pit, taking pictures. Got their cars here, starting some music and setting up tents. This is really incredible. I spoke to a bunch of folks, but I think James Tuffle from Oxford in southern England captured the moment best. So to set the scene, we have a clear, starry night, and we are currently camped out eating a dodgy chicken curry by a fire pit that's been burning for 40 years in the middle of the Turkmenistan desert, one of the most closed countries in the world. And we drove here from London. <laughs> it's utterly surreal <laughs> on so many levels. It seems like no one even at Burning Man could make something as insane as this fireball in the desert. Good travelers ache to get away from the tourist traps. They crave finding the little secrets around the city and learn how to improvise. Wandering teaches us how to pivot from whatever falls in our way. For Jesse Owens, that was unfortunately a tree. On a snowy day in Washington state, she was left orphaned and quadriplegic, destined to live out the rest of her days in a wheelchair. When the worst happened, she thought she had nothing left. The world was taken from her. No more spontaneous trips or endless nights out. Everything would have to be planned. No wiggle room for adventure. After the accident, I lost everything. I lost my house. I lost my parents. I lost my job. I lost my body. Uh, I, I didn't have a whole lot to cling to. And so you find yourself wandering through life and finding things to cling to. And in the beginning, it was easy to cling to recovery because that's the number one focus. And it was the right focus to, to get your body as strong as you can. But at some point, your life becomes more meaningful when it's more than just about yourself. But as her strength slowly came back, so did her spirit. The chance that she survived meant she needed to live for those who had been lost and flourish to her full range. And I think I was ready to make that transition in about two and a half years. And and I needed to try life on. And so I started with a couple shorter trips to California and had a lot of fun with my friends. And ultimately I just had one great friend who was up for an adventure with me. And we decided to plan a six week backpacking trip through Europe. And we just, 
didn't know a lot about it. Neither of us had spent a lot of time abroad before and crossed our fingers and jumped in the deep end. With all the planning, it sometimes seems like the surprises of wandering will be sucked out of the experience. She tells that although her range of motion is limited, her sense of wonder hasn't been curbed. She's still able to let go and let the world steer her chair. Deciding to travel with a disability does take a little bit more planning. Your ability to be super spontaneous is taken away just a little bit. You are welcome to do that. However, you're likely to run into a couple more uh, constraints if you don't check. So my friend and I were spending some time in Portugal and Spain and we decided to go to Morocco. Tangier was our, our first stop. So after a full day of travel, we pull into Old Town Tangier and it is windy. It seems like there's no structure to these hills and the shops and it's, it's beautiful architecture, but I can't navigate very well between it. And clearly we look like two lost women and we're on our phones and can't find it. And two very um, generous men came up and said, oh, hey, we'll show you where the hotel is. And we kind of had this spidey sense because we didn't know where we were going. We didn't know these men. They're offering to take us somewhere. And, it, you know, it's one of those moments where you're like this, you need to think about this, how this could be a bad situation. But we decided to look at each other and decided to go with it. And so we allowed them to take us through these windy roads, dirt roads, cobblestones, bunch of places with steps that he had to find a way to get around until we finally got to our hotel. We thought it was a good sign that we made it there alive. So we checked in and just laid down for an hour. And when we were ready to go back out and explore, we didn't have any plan. We just thought we'd look through the shops. The, the two men were still there. They said, oh, we were waiting for you. Got the spidey sense again and thought, well, I guess, yeah. Well, you know what, let's go for it. And so we agreed to just allow these guys to show us around. And we followed them and they pushed my wheelchair and they lifted my wheelchair over things and into the shops. And it was a real moment of letting go and just being on the stream of travel and experiencing the culture and just having maybe a memory that ended up turning out really well for us. He found the only restaurant that was actually serving food because it was Ramadan when we were there and there was no food. He took us to his friends and his rug shops and his the spice shops and my 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 tour guides were friends with the owner. He made us special tea and we sat down with the owner of the shop and he pulled out some of his very special things and said, I don't expect you to buy any of these but this is my home and this is my country and I want to share it with you and I want to show you these special things. I want you to drink this, this uh, friendship tea with us. And it was really a beautiful moment. It ended up being a real positive experience for us, even though 
we didn't have a clue what it was going to be like going into it. As crazy and unprepared I was for Morocco, I never had so many people tell me, my home is now your home. I want to make you feel comfortable. I want you to be happy here. And I want, you are special. And the hospitality was more than we could ever get. And in fact, it was more. I hired for the two or three days later, I did hire a professional tour guide to kind of show us around other parts of the city. And it was not as warm or informative or we just weren't immersed in the, in the culture as much. And from that particular paid, hired professional tour, I kind of came away feeling disappointed. I do think my, my old town Moroccan experience was really enriched by these particular men and this wandering go with the flow moment in our travels. There's really something super special about getting that local experience when a local takes you to their favorite coffee shop rather than the one with the 40 tourists in it. Even if we're able-bodied, we have to muster a certain kind of strength for traveling, no matter if you're going to the next state over or the other side of the planet. So I asked Jessie, how does she mentally prepare for trips near or far? I think all of us have a little bit of a hesitant traveler within us. There's always that what if, and there's a lot of what ifs when, when you have a disability. It's a, it, there's a lot more risk of things gonna go wrong. And you know what, they're going to go wrong. They just are. Even if you're fully capable, have a great, all the money in the world and a fully capable body, you're still gonna run into things that go wrong. And I really had to coach myself on that mentality going into my first trip. Jessie has found that traveling has still taught her the big lessons she needed to learn. You know, I think I found through that first trip that just travel just teaches me again and again that my disability isn't the author of my story or the determinant for how happy or content I am. I love and I believe in travel I'll travel near or far because it's where I bump up against the constraints and boundaries that either I created for myself or that I've allowed others to create for me. You know, here's the thing, shifts happen in our life. Maybe your story isn't as tragic as a tree falling on your car and killing your parents and you becoming paralyzed. But everybody knows what it's like to have the story shift unexpectedly and to lose the plot in our own story for a little while. That's part of what it's like to be human. That's why I love travel. It asks me to gain that new perspective by putting me in touch with that bigger story and bigger people. And after traveling, you know, many months and to many different cities now, I can 100% say that everywhere I've been, I've seen at least another person with a disability, in a wheelchair, with a walker, with crutches, with Parkinson's, and they're all managing to live and travel and explore and not let their stories be cut short. When we give ourselves meaningless exploration, it can sometimes show us our own sense of being. I think what makes someone a good wanderer 
is never losing your sense of curiosity. Curiosity is non-judgmental. It's open and a leading force. And Carla and I are curious folk. Out of all of the adventures together, the ones where we've aimlessly walked around stick out the most, like the tallest poppies in a field of flowers. We've meandered into rug shops in Morocco and have had tea with the owner. We've stumbled into a Buddhist restaurant in Vietnam and have had pho that was like eating a bowl of ribbons. And we've walked off the path while hiking Mount Rainier just to get a better view. Our curiosity has enriched our travels. These were the times we allowed the place to open up to us organically. We found just as much as when we've stuck to schedule. But without the pressure to cram everything in, we got to enjoy it more. I think that as we grow older, we're a little starved for wandering, more senseless exploration. We've become dependent on knowing exactly where we're going. Everything is tightly scheduled. With our workaholic lifestyles, emailing late into the night, or stepping out of dinner in order to take a call, sometimes I think we've domesticated ourselves a little too well and wonder what would it be like if we turned off our phones, closed our eyes, and picked a direction. Allow yourself to wander. You might find freedom there. After all this wandering, we're starting to get hungry. On our next episode, we will talk to people who define their adventures through their stomachs. From finding greasy spoons to throwing back local brews, we will talk to travelers who will go to the ends of the earth for the perfect meal. Start fasting now. You're about to overeat. Next time on Strangers Abroad.
I think that what makes someone a good wanderer is to never lose your sense of curiosity. Curiosity is non-judgmental. It is open and a leading force. And Carla and I are curious folk. Out of all the adventures together, the ones where we've aimlessly walked around stick out in our minds the most, like the tallest poppies in a field of flowers. Meandering into rug shops in Morocco and having tea with the owner, stumbling into a Buddhist restaurant in Vietnam and having pho that was like eating a bowl of ribbons, and walking off the paved path while hiking Mount Rainier just to get a better view. Our curiosity has enriched our travels. The times where we've slowed down and have allowed the place to open up to us organically. We have found just as much as when we stick to schedule, but we get to enjoy it more. I think as we grow older, we are starved for wandering, more senseless exploration. With our workaholic lifestyles, emailing late at night, or stepping out of dinner in order to make a business call, Sometimes I think we've domesticated ourselves a little too well and wonder what it would be like if we turned off our phones, closed our eyes, and picked a direction. Allow yourself to wander. You might find freedom there. After all of this walking around, we're starting to get hungry. On our next episode, we will talk to people who define their adventures through their stomachs. Tune in next time on Strangers Abroad.